In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, come upon us all and help us to understand what it is that you want us to understand from Holy Scripture. Regardless of what is said, help to enlighten our minds, each and every one of us as individuals, so that we might take away from this meeting what it is that you want to teach each one of us as individuals. So we ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to set aside preconceived notions or understandings and just be open to new ways of looking at things. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I want to welcome those people that weren't here last week. Uh, you'll just have to do extra homework to catch up. That's all. Uh, and if you want CDs or copies of last week's uh, lecture, let us know. Just sign the little uh, clipboard over there, and we'll take care of that, and the CD will be uh, ready for you next week. Okay. There are a couple over there from last week that is available if you wish to have them. Okay. A few things that I want to do before we get into the sort of the meat of, of Hebrews today, and that is sort of revisit some of the subjects that we talked about last week, particularly the uh, meaning of the New Testament and uh, the first covenant. Now, I believe I said that the words testament and covenant were somewhat interchangeable, and many people use them that way, but that's not exactly correct. Covenant is the promise that is made by one person or group of persons with another. Testament, in this case, is the recording of the implementation of that promise. All right. So, when you're talking about time periods or something, it might be all right to make those interchangeable. But if you're getting down to the meat of what the new covenant is versus the old or the first covenant, you've got to get to your into your mind the understanding of what those covenants are or were. The first covenant, and this is a review for some of you, but it's necessary to understand. The first covenant is a covenant that God made with Abraham to begin the implementation of his plan of salvation. Now, let's go back a little bit before that. God knew when he made mankind that they were going to offend him. But that was acceptable in his mind because anything that is not of God or divinely part of God is imperfect. And anything that is imperfect, or anyone who is imperfect, is going to fail at some time or other. 
And God knew this right up front. Let me give you an, uh, an analogy, maybe not a perfect one, again, because nothing else is perfect except God. But when a man and a wife come together in a Christian marriage, they automatically, or should automatically, have the idea that they're going to have children. Doesn't always turn out that way, but that has to be one of the primary tenets of the commitment of marriage is that children will be accepted into this union. And they know, if they're really mature people, that those children are going to hurt them at some point in time. I mean, it's, that's natural, that's human. But they have children anyways. And you love those children in spite of the fact that they may or they have offended you or hurt you in some way. That is all, of course, except mine. You know. But the commitment that God began with Abraham was a way to alleviate the breach that is caused by sin of mankind against a perfect and divine God. There has to be a way to rectify or resolve that problem. And God knew that. And so he starts his plan of salvation, which of course culminates in the death and resurrection of Christ. But he had to start that way back with mankind And he began with Abraham. And so Abraham became the focal point of the beginning of his plan of salvation. And it was then handed down through Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the prophets, etc. That plan of salvation and that commitment that was made, that covenant that was made consisted of three things. Descendants or people, descendants of Abraham that is, land and God's infinite protection which is sort of a overall uh, easy way of saying God is divine protection. But it isn't stated that way because Abraham would not have understood that, nor would any of his immediate descendants. It was something that had to gradually develop over a period of time. And that development is then recorded in the books of the Old Testament. So, Testament is the written implementation and the history of God's plan of salvation being developed through the Old Testament people. Is that understood? Is that helpful in any way to kind of put it all together? Because when Hebrews talks about covenant, it's talking about the promise that God made 
through Abraham and all of the others of the Old Testament. But we're not saying that that was wrong or there was anything um, wrong at all. What we're saying is that was the beginning of God's plan of salvation. And it was not really perfected until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which then began a new promise. Look at it this way. If a person is, for example, I was uh, at the ceremony and one of, or one of the ceremonies, you might say, at the beginning, beginning of the building of the New World Trade Center after the destruction of 9-11. Uh, the ground was cleared away and so forth. Well, as you know that that building now reaches over a hundred stories high. So, to have a building of that height, it had to have a significant foundation. And that foundation goes about four, no, five levels below ground to give it a significant foundation in order to carry that weight above. So you might think of the first covenant as being that foundation which was good, which was sound, which was necessary, which was made by by God himself. And it was good. But when that foundation was completed, then the part above ground had to start. And that is the time of Jesus Christ. So if you'll go to your handout of last week, you will see exactly what we are talking about. When you look at this diagram or illustration here, Creation begins, you might say, with God, and it takes all of these events that are depicted in this first one-third of the circle, and it covers a description of the implementation of God's plan of salvation. And when that beginning or that foundation is completed then Jesus Christ appears on the scene and takes over from there and establishes the teachings and the meaning of what God wants each of us to understand in a going forward of this plan. The old plan has now been fulfilled by Christ and now the new plan begins. And all of the teachings of Christ then are in the New Testament. And then when Christ's role in God's plan has been completed, 
Then he ascends into heaven and turns that job over to the Holy Spirit, who then takes the benefits of the Old Testament and the New Testament and applies them to mankind and helps mankind then return to the Father. Now that might sound simple, but living it out is not, as you all know. But that is as easy a way to understand this whole time period of the Bible. Is there any questions? Is that clear enough? I hope so. Because it's important that you kind of understand uh, those items when we are discussing Hebrews. Okay. The Old Testament was good because it was divinely started by Christ and by God himself. And anything that God does is good. Divinely good. So, don't get the idea that we're putting down the Old Testament or the, the Old Covenant. And we call it the first covenant. We don't call the second one the second covenant. It is the eternal covenant because it cannot be stopped. It cannot be ended. It only ends at the end of creation or the whole end of time, you might say, and the end of the world when we are all either united with God in heaven or unfortunately for those people who have rejected God uh, themselves have condemned themselves. All right. Uh, there is no way about it. And that is why we say that the first covenant made with Abraham and so forth is bilateral because it starts out, if you do this, I will do that. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And we see where the Jewish people, over a period of time, have again rejected what God has asked of them. In the New Testament, under the new and eternal covenant, it's either you accept it, or the alternative is eternal damnation. Because there is no either-or type of thing. It is This is the way it is, folks. And it's unfortunate, but God has made it very clear over 4,000 years now, 2,000 years under the Old Testament or Covenant and 2,000 years since the time of Christ. And it might go on for another 1,000 years. We don't know. And that's not up to us. One point that is made by many tele-evangelists and and others is they talk about the last times in reference to the end of the world. And that is not correct in accordance with biblical teaching. The end times began with Christ himself. Because it means, and it is referring to the fact that everything that God wants mankind to know about himself is and has been revealed through Jesus Christ. Nothing new. 
has been revealed about God since that time. Now, the interpretation of much of that has changed or been brought to light. But the basic information has not. Everything that God wants us to know about him has been revealed through Christ, and that's important why we listen to him. Remember, at the transfiguration, the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus and uh, James and John went up the mountain and Jesus was transfigured uh, before James and John, or in front of, I should say, uh, and spoke to the Father. He did that to let them know who he really was. You know, even though the apostles spent uh, quite a bit of time with Christ, there was always that doubt. There was always that wondering, uh, is he really God? What does that mean? And so forth and so on. So the transfiguration was to give James and John, who then, of course, related it to the others, a glimpse of who Jesus really was. But at that time period, and in that story, we hear the Father saying to James and John, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And that message has to be taken as being meant for all mankind, not just James and John. Their job was to take the meaning of Christ's whole life, death and resurrection, including that scene, and make it known to all mankind. In fact, that's the difference between the Jewish thinking as and Christian thinking. The Jewish people were made to be a model community whose basic premise was love of God and love of mankind. And through that basic community, they were to radiate that love and God's teachings to all the other nations, the pagan nations around them. They either misunderstood or they didn't really want to understand. And so what they did was they made themselves a very exclusive community where they would not go out and talk to the pagan nations around them. Even when they found themselves as uh, conquered and dominated by first the Persians and then the Greeks and then finally the Romans, they would not go out to those people and discuss their beliefs and the teachings of God through them. All right. In fact, they made it part of their law that they were not to deal with uh, anyone outside of their own tribes or they're outside of the, the Jewish nation. Uh, and that is just the opposite of what God wanted. In Christianity, we again are asked to go out and evangelize, talk to other people, 
invite other people to open their minds and their hearts to what God has uh, revealed to us and through us through the church. Remember, in the Old Testament, God spoke to, and this is the words out of the first verses of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, in the old times, God spoke to mankind through the prophets and the patriarchs and the judges, etc., etc. But now he's speaking to us through Jesus Christ and through the church. And that is why we have to listen to the teachings of the church. And right now we are in a period of anticipation and perhaps a little bit of uh, quandary as to where do we stand because everybody's hoping that uh, the new pope who is visiting in the east right now uh, is going to make all kinds of changes. Keep in mind, he cannot change the teachings of God. And he will not change the basic teachings of God. What he will probably change is hopefully our attitude towards them. But the whole idea of Christianity is the same as it was through Judaism. We are to evangelize and bring in all of those who are not Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to go and uh, make a nuisance of ourselves and thump everybody on the head with the Bible and so forth and wear it on our sleeves or our foreheads or something like that. We do it through our speech and our actions. And that is what both of these books are all about. The why in Hebrews and the how in James. Does that make sense? That's what we're all about. That's what we want to get across. What I'd like to do is spend time kind of reviewing some of the important points of the introduction to a letter to the Hebrews. So if you'll if you'll go to your book now, I'm not going to read every word here, but there are certain uh, paragraphs or points that are in here that I think are worth discussing a little bit more. On uh, page six, at the bottom of that first section about authorship, it says Hebrews makes the best sense if we suppose that the hearers are oriented towards traditional apocalyptic thought. Apocalyptic thought was very prevalent in uh, the time of the early church. That is the first part of the first century. What it means when it says apocalyptic thought is that it was a common thought at that time that Jesus was going to return and the end of the world was going to happen in their lifetime. 
Now, not everybody thought that, but many people did. In fact, in Second uh, Thessalonians, Paul says uh, that it has become a nuisance to many communities that he began because this idea of the end of the world uh, has become so fixed in the minds and the hearts of the people there that many of them stop just work, stop working, stop doing anything, and they were sort of, you might say, pardon the expression, mooching off of their neighbors as far as uh, food and clothing and necessities of life. And he's saying that anyone who refuses to work and go on as if life is going to continue forever uh, should not eat. And he's putting it rather strongly. But that point of the end of the world was very common at that point in time, or that period, okay? So that's what he means here by apocalyptic thought. And the author seeks to reinforce that orientation with the assurance that the future hope is already grounded in the present. That is, the future of spiritual life is already grounded in the fact that Christ died for our sins, paying the uh, ultimate price, you might say, for the reconciliation of mankind to the Father, and that was evidenced by the resurrection itself, God's acceptance of the sacrifice that Christ offered. If you go over to the next page, about three or four sentences down, it says, because Hebrews uses the Old Testament so extensively, it was thought in ancient times or antiquity, as well as by many modern interpreters today, to be addressed to former Jews who were in danger of losing their hope in Christ and slipping back into Judaism. Well, I must be one of those former or modern interpreters because I think that that is part of the reasons that Hebrews was originally spoken as a sermon. Now, it's important to kind of understand this uh, part. Most Bible scholars believe that Hebrews was spoken verbally as a sermon to people who were sort of in this in-between um, decision-making process. Converted Jews who accepted Christ and Christianity, but now find that it's not measuring up to what they expected. You see, Judaism had a lot of ceremonies and it had uh, roots in its temple and uh, the synagogues and it had all kinds of laws and customs and so forth. Christianity didn't have any of that. All it had was the basics from our mass, the consecration, and the memory, of course, and the teachings of Christ himself. 
a lot of the, or most of the writings of the New Testament have not been out yet. So they were going, they were skating on thin ice, you might say. And they were concerned. And then, of course, you had the persecutions by the Jewish people themselves. Those Jewish people who converted to Christianity were then ostracized and forbidden to go into the temple or to the synagogues. The temple had not yet been destroyed. Uh, so they, this persecution began very early after the time of Christ's death and resurrection. People didn't quite get the point of how the Holy Spirit worked in all of this. So there was not a great deal of leaning on the teachings about the Holy Spirit that's in the Gospel of John, and that did not become uh, the phenomena that it should and is today. All right? So you had these people that were concerned, and they thought, well, maybe Christ really wasn't all that these guys, the apostles and Paul and so forth, are saying that he is. And, you know, the doubts began to take place. And so the author, the original author, that is the person who spoke this out loud, was trying to give, convince them, and he does, does a marvelous job in convincing them that once you've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and Messiah, you can't go back because the back was, you're going back into like the basement of the building rather than to the top, the crown, the, you know, the platform on top or whatever to see. I always think of the Empire State Building. How, how many of you have been to the Empire State Building and have been to the top? It's tremendous view. The same way with Rockefeller Center. Both of those buildings have several floors below ground as their foundation. But who wants to go down into the basement? You know, you're not going to see anything except smelly old cars or something down there. Uh, you want to always go up. And so these people are sort of told in rather different terms, of course, that they can't go back to the basement. That is uh, Judaism of the Old Testament. Okay. So I feel that you have a, a large number of Jewish converts that this was addressed to. And then somebody else must have heard this sermon and thought, well, there are so many good points in this sermon. So he takes all of that and writes it down so that it is distributed so everybody can hear it. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's how non-Jews can hear it. That's right. Yeah. And so, as Anna just pointed out, the Greeks and pagans and whoever converted to Catholicism uh, or Christianity then could also have the benefit of reading this 
because it makes a great deal of sense. Now, the references to the persons of the Old Testament may not have been as uh, clear and important to the non-Jews, but nevertheless, the basics of this letter are still very important. So, it doesn't make any difference to whom it was originally addressed. Let's take it from there as being meant for us today. Because many people are just sort of leaving uh, the church altogether. Not necessarily going to other uh, non-Christian faiths, but just falling away. And that is, as my kids used to say, that's worser. Uh, because you are actually abandoning God all altogether and making you know sports and uh, the entertainment world and fashion and food uh, your God today, and that's not where salvation rests. Okay. Uh, there's a helpful hint here on page 8, sort of in the middle. It says, the means that the reader of Hebrews should first look to the Old Testament passages to understand the author's reasoning. Uh, and that's true. As you go through, and we'll do this here because I want to get through chapter 1 today, and gives you an example it will help you if you uh, have the Old Testament uh, handy, you know, your Bible handy, and go through some of these passages to read before and after uh, the ones quoted in Hebrews. There, In the first chapter, there's a number of quotations from the Old Testament as well as other parts of the New Testament. And to really put it all together... It's best if you go back and read a little bit of where those Old Testament uh, passages are and what they pertain to. Down at the bottom of page 8 says, The first section of Hebrews, that is the beginning right through chapter 4, verse 13, deals with the word of God spoken to his son, and exhorts the hearers to pay attention to this word more carefully than to God's word communicated through the angels or through Moses. The whole idea of angels to the Jewish people prior to the time of Christ, or even up through the first century, was quite extensive. In other words, angels were a way of God communicating to people, either in dreams or actual apparitions uh, or many other ways. God also spoke to his people because, remember, the Holy Spirit wasn't uh, released to mankind until after Christ's death and resurrection. And there was no church in the way that we have church today. And so 
the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the judges, uh, and the prophets were the primary speakers uh, from of God's word to mankind at that time. The word prophet, again, please understand, the word prophet does not mean, in a biblical sense, someone who tells the future. Although we have get, we have gotten to use uh, that term sort of in reference to people prophesying, meaning telling the future, that's not what it meant in the early days. It means, uh, still means, it was somebody who spoke for God. If God was speaking to these people about something in the future, uh, sometimes the prophets understood that, and sometimes they didn't. But it was the message coming from God through these people. Today we don't have prophets because, why? We have the church and the Holy Spirit on individual uh, basis. Okay, But it is the church and we don't have angels speaking to us today for the same reason. It is the church that speaks to us and interprets what God originally uh, gave to mankind through Jesus Christ. Okay. But in Hebrews, there is a great deal of trying to convince the Jewish people who were sort of waffling back and forth that those people in the past were needed, were necessary, were good, but no longer. And they will not be um, recognized in the future. Okay. Uh, let's drop down to the middle of page 9 here. It says, this sermon is important because it shows us more clearly than any other New Testament writing the extent to which the interpretation of the Old Testament played a role in the development of early Christian thought. Such a role can be seen in most New Testament books, and it is important that the Christian belief in the continuity of salvation history, from creation to redemption, from creation to redemption, that is, from the beginning of time through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Hebrew, <coughs> Hebrews illustrates it in a very special way. Further down on that same page, it says, Christ is seen as the new word of God because Christ was God. Or I should say, Christ is God. We can't use past tense uh, in reference to Christ because he is still very much alive and well. Uh, below that says, uh, Christ functions as the unique eternal high priest whose self-sacrifice in death finally atones for the sins of mankind. 
and Christ's own insight into the heavenly world of God is the model of faith that Christians need to persevere in their hope. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we get into the second part, and I talked about the first part being uh, the beginning up through chapter 4, verse uh, 13, when we get into the second part, which takes us all the way up to chapter 10, it is regarding the high priest nature of Christ's role in God's plan of salvation versus the high priest of the Old Covenant. And what you have here is that there is no comparison because the high priest of the Old Covenant, and you remember at the time of Christ you have Caiaphas and uh, Annas, his father-in-law, and you had others. In fact, Zechariah was a high priest for uh, a short time, Zechariah being the father of John the Baptist, etc. Uh, but now that has all been done away with, with Jesus Christ taking the place. But the difference here is that Christ was God himself. So whatever he did, whatever he offered, was far, far greater than all of these other high priests, even though they may have been good for their purpose at their particular time. All right, let's go on to the first chapter of Hebrews. Yes. No. That whole idea of the priesthood disappeared uh, with the demise of the, the temple. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. The high priest uh, role, and actually the high priest was the chief uh, leader, I guess this is as good a word I can use, uh, for the Jewish people, even though they had a king, you know, Herod, and there were seven Herods, uh, they, the Herods were only there sort of as puppets, you might say, of the Roman Empire. Uh, the high priest role began during the Babylonian captivity. Okay. There was no leader of the Jewish people when they were in uh, Babylon. And so one of the priests began to take the role of their leader, and that was accepted. And his role grew over a period of time. And when they returned to uh, Israel, there was no king again because they were under the domination of the Romans. And so the high priest became the leader of all those people. And so for 500 years, the high priest was the, the chief spokesman for Judaism and the Jewish people. But when the temple was uh, destroyed in 70 AD, that role and uh, the whole uh, concept of the priesthood under Judaism uh, fell apart and was never reconstituted. 
More like the Pope and the President put together. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't elected. He wasn't so, like, divinely. No, no. Uh, it was more of a, uh, nepotism, you might say, handed down from father to son. Yeah. And in, in his case, uh, Annas was, the case at, at Jesus' time, I might say, Annas uh, was married but had no children. Well, wait a minute, he had a daughter, I forgot. He had a daughter and, so his son-in-law, Caiaphas, then succeeded him as being the high priest. And that's the way it was handed down. Uh, but then at the time of the destruction of the temple by the Romans, uh, the whole idea of the priesthood and temple worship uh, disappeared, never to be restored. And because that was part of God's uh, way of telling the Jewish people that he has withdrawn the uh, first covenant because of their disobedience. Okay. Rabbi didn't come into common use, even though it was used occasionally, because even in some of the gospel stories, Jesus is called rabbi, because the word rabbi means teacher. Okay. But it has come over a period of time, particularly since the 4th century, when the Talmud was written. Uh, the Talmud is the taking of the Jewish laws that it were uh, given to Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments, and they started to expand. Uh, the Talmud was the definition of what those laws were and to what extent they would apply. Um, during that period of time, around the 3rd or 4th century A.D., was when the word rabbi was associated with someone who was consecrated to the teachings of Judaism. Yeah. Does that make sense? All right. And that's still the case. Yeah. A rabbi must be consecrated uh, to the teachings of Judaism. You can't just, anybody can't be called rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, does that answer your question too? Yeah. Okay. Alright, let's go on to uh, page 11. Uh, the prologue. Very important, and, and I'll read that with you here, uh, because the prologue in most of New Testament writings gives you a sort of a preview of what it's all about. And it's almost like the overture uh, to an opera or some uh, musical presentation where you get a little snippets of this and that throughout the entire uh, program. It says, in times past, that means in the First covenant time period, God spoke in partial and various ways to our ancestors through the patriarchs, prophets, Moses, David, the uh, prophets, etc. Through the prophets, in these last days, that's where the term comes from, in these last days, 
That means the time of Jesus Christ. He spoke to us through a son, whom he made heir of all things and through whom he created the universe. Let me, let me stop for a moment here. Many people over a period of time have asked me, why is Jesus called the Son of God if he's equal? You have to understand this was something coming out of Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, the firstborn male, the firstborn son of a family was honored as someone that was very special and was always given special treatment. Subsequent sons, forget it. Unfortunately, that's the way it was. Uh, But over a period of time, the culture was that the firstborn son, once he became an adult, around the year 30 of age level, like equivalent to our 21, once he became an adult, he was equal to the father and was the image of the father. Uh, For example, if the father, or when the father died, if he died prior to the firstborn son, the firstborn son would inherit everything. The mother, forget it. Alright? But he also inherited the obligation of taking care of his mother as well as any siblings. Alright? That's why Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is constantly concerned about widows and orphans, as well as poor people. You see those three words linked together many, many times throughout the New Testament. And that is because widows and orphans or children of minor age had no rights whatsoever and could not inherit property. They could earn property on their own, but they could not inherit property. All right? And they had no legal standing. And so Jesus tried to get people to change their minds on that subject because it just didn't make sense. It was not fair. It was not part of his love of God and love of neighbor. And after a while, it became a rather inconvenient hardship. Alright. But going back to Jesus being the Son of God, the whole idea is, and that's why Jesus did not start his public ministry until around the age 30, because that is when people were recognized as an adult. If he had started his ministry say, at 20, they wouldn't have paid any attention to him because he was a kid. And, you know, they didn't pay any attention to any kids at that age. So that's why the whole idea of God or Jesus being the Son of God, you know, he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He is part of God. He is equal to God. But in human terms, 
He has to be fitted into the culture of the time and the writing. And the only way he could fit into the culture would be to be recognized as the Son of God, which was not demeaning in any way. It was actually an elevated position. But we don't see it that way because it's not common to us. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, let's go on to the next page, a couple things. The theme that permeates the whole sermon is how to hear and respond to God's revelation. And that's important for all New Testament writings. We have to listen to them and keep in mind the foundation that was established through the prophets, through Abraham, through God and all of the Old Testament people. We have to constantly remember that the Old Testament was founded by God, it was divinely established and very important, but it was also completed and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus in in, uh, John's Gospel said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is another term for the Old Testament. They didn't use that term in those days. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he did. So that doesn't mean that we're putting down the Old Testament. It means that it has been completed and now we must take up what belongs to us through the offering of Christ and the New Testament writers. Down at the bottom of this page, there's an important statement about the angels. It's about uh, two or three sentences up from the bottom. It says, first, the angels were thought in some sense to be the mediators of God's word in the law of Israel. Well, yes, they were. Which was superseded by the Christian gospel. All right. That's just what I got through saying, is what was given to us through the writers of the Old Testament was good, and still is good in many ways as establishing the foundation. But now, those writings have been completed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, And now we must look to the message that is given to us through the Gospels. Of course, the word Gospels, when it's in a small um, case lettering here, it refers to all of the New Testament writings, not just the four Gospels. Is that understood? Yeah, okay. You got some important points on the um, next page. But one of the things I want to do here is to show you 
how this author has now used quotations from the Old Testament to emphasize his teaching. Beginning with verse 5 here, uh, the messianic enthronement says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, this day I have begotten you? And that's out of Psalm 2, verse 7. You have to remember is that the educated people, the educated Jewish people, knew scripture backwards and forwards because there weren't many other books, you know. You didn't have all of these romance novels and stuff uh, in those days. So uh, the only thing people had to read was Holy Scripture and uh, a few uh, Greek uh theological tones and so forth. And there were a few other stories, but, but, you know, mostly history. But the most basic thing that they had, uh, and the most common thing that they had, was the scriptures. And so the educated Jewish people of that time period knew scripture backwards and forwards. So all you had to do was to make a reference to virtually any part of scripture, and they would understand immediately where it was coming from. Let me give you an example. Jesus did this on the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that would be a natural statement for somebody who was in agony, about to die, and hanging on a cross, wouldn't it? But, That's not what it means. What he's saying here is going back and quoting Psalm 22. The very first words are exactly the same. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you forsaken me? All right? The first part of Psalm 22 is a psalm uh, or prayer of somebody who is in dire agony. But the second part of that, and a lot of people don't get around to reading the second part of that, but the first part talks about the uh, the uh, throwing of dice to divide Jesus' clothing. It talks about a number of uh, things about uh, he's lost so much weight they can count all his bones and that kind of thing. So what it's doing is describing exactly what is going on on the cross. And it's like saying, look, fellas, you know, to the Romans and the people that caused this, you are fulfilling, and I'm fulfilling, what was prophesied centuries ago in Psalm 22. But I'll have the last laugh because... The second part of Psalm 22 is a victory psalm that Christ could have said after the resurrection. I have succeeded. I have overcome death. But many people don't realize that. But the Jewish people, the educated people, particularly the the temple rulers who were standing at the foot of the cross to make sure he died, understood 
Let me give you another example. In Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is beginning to choose his apostles, okay, um, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and then uh, Nathaniel comes along. All right? And they all ask Jesus where he's staying. And Jesus says, quote, The foxes have dens, and the birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now that might be a kind of a strange response to us today if we ask somebody where he's staying. But that's the first words out of Psalm 84. Exactly. And what it's referring to is that the Son of Man, God, Jesus, is not at any one place. You see, their question was referred to where is your permanent home? Because that was very important to those people in those days. And the conception of the Jewish people was that God was in the temple, not outside. He didn't know where, what you were thinking of as long as you were outside the temple. You know, it was kind of a, a strange, limited uh, concept. But Jesus is making a couple points. He doesn't live at any one particular place, and he doesn't live in the temple. I think most people say it's lamenting, it's saying tormenting. Yeah, but that's not so. That's not so. Yeah, you're right. Uh, The Jewish people understood, when you give them only a few words from a various portion of Old Testament writings, what was meant. Let me give you an example out of here. In reference to the author's um, beginning of a, a debate, you might say, about angels versus Christ, says, um, to which of the angels, any of the angels, did God ever say, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. Right out of Psalm 2. Very interesting psalm. I would recommend it highly. Or, again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This is a quotation of the second book of Samuel, where Samuel is referring to somebody in the future, the Messiah. Of the future. Okay. And again, when he leads the firstborn into the world, he says, let the, uh, let all the angels of God worship him. Now this is the important one because that comes right out of the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation we know was not written until the end of the first century. We don't know exactly when, but somewhere around the last 10 or 15 years of the first century, if this is truly out of the book of Revelation and not out of some general uh, commonly used phrase, then that would mean that this letter was written towards the end of the first century. And because of the nature of the entire letter to the Hebrews, 
we have no way of knowing when this was written. And it could have been written any time. Because it does not mention the destruction of the temple. It sort of leaves that door open. So that's always been a time period uh, when people would be able to discern when something was written. If it mentions the, t- the temple as something uh, available or ongoing or present, then you knew it was written before 70 AD. If it mentions the destruction of the temple, obviously, then it's written after 70 AD. But Hebrews doesn't say one thing or the other, one way or the other. But this quotation is right out of the book of Revelation, uh, verse 1, um, I mean, chapter 1, verse 5. So, you know, it kind of leads us to believe that the possibility that this was written towards the end of the first century. Again, the author is saying, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministries uh, a fiery flame, which is right out of Psalm 104, verse 4. Um, but again, your throne, O God, stands forever, right out of Psalm 45. And a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom, the continuation of that same one. Or, you love justice and hated wickedness, and therefore God, your God, anointed you with the oils of gladness above your companions. Again, this is out of the New Testament. Philippians verse, or chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. If that is true, and we know Philippians was also written towards the end of the first century, then this whole letter. Now, let's look at it this way. There's two time periods in this letter. The one when it was originally spoken of as a sermon, and the other one when it was finally written down and disseminated to all those. So, the original speaking of the sermon could have been much earlier, because it takes time to write these things down on parchment or, you know, whatever in those days, and get it published. So, uh, again, it leaves the door open as to the time period but it looks a little more leaning towards the end of the first century. Again, at the beginning, or on the next page we go over, at the beginning, our Lord established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. and They will all grow old like garments. Now, that comes right out of the book of Jeremiah. You will roll them up like a cloth, again Jeremiah, and like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Uh, speaking of Jeremiah, Jeremiah lived in the uh, early part of the 6th century and the 5th century uh, B.C., And Jeremiah wrote a great deal of his book or his writings 
to kind of give the Jewish people uh, hope in their return to the promised land from Babylon. All right. Remember, the many people that lived in Babylon when it was released in 539 B.C., they were never, they were not familiar with Israel because many of them were born in Babylon. They were there for 50 years. So a good number of the people were born there and had no understanding of what Israel was really like. Okay, And so when they finally came back, they didn't know what they were going to find. They didn't know what they were going to be up against. And then when they did get back, you had this clash between the returnees and those people who never left in the first place. And that didn't work out very well. All right. So Jeremiah is one who came back, if he ever left, and we're not sure of that, uh, is trying to give the people at the time of the return hope that things will work out because God is with them and their returning was the work of God himself. And so that's where this is coming from, all right? Because the people that this is being addressed to were in that same flux, you might say, in their minds. Is this the right thing to do? Should we leave Christianity and go back to Judaism just like the people uh, in Babylon. Should we really leave Babylon and go back to a country that we've never known? But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Again, another song. Are they, and this again is the author now speaking, are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It gives us that whole idea of what the first covenant was all about, but it has now been completed and is to be renewed strengthened and fulfilled through us under the second covenant. Thank you, Dorothy. All right. Most Bibles have cross-references, all right, either in the footnotes or in this case, for example, here. These are all the cross-references where certain passages here, which are marked with an asterisk, are then referenced to give you an idea of where else they may be. All right. So that's how you can tell if you go to a Bible like this and look at some of the wording from your little booklet, you will then be able to tell what uh, area or what booklet from the Old Testament it comes from, or perhaps the New Testament. Very good. All right. Very good point. Uh, this gentleman is asking about when Christ calls himself the son of man. All right. That phrase comes right out of the 
book of Daniel, chapter 7. All right. And it's used here in sort of a, a humble way. Because if, if Jesus had called himself the Son of God right off the bat, they would have thought he was a little, you know, uh, because that was a, a big, big no-no in his day and age. All right. So he didn't want to spoil his message before it got out. So he, throughout his ministry, which lasted, you know, only approximately three years or so, throughout his ministry, he never referred to himself as the Son of God. When he was asked by Pilate, he said yes, because he couldn't deny himself. But in reference to himself, at other times, he uses the word Son of Man. Now, as I said, that comes right out of the book of Daniel, and it was referring to somebody who is, again, greater than the angels. Interesting point. The first temple of Judaism, that is the hard temple, was built by Solomon in the ninth century B.C. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in the sixth century B.C. When they came back from Babylon, they repaired or restored as much as they could of Solomon's temple. Uh, but that fell into a great deal of disrepair and, and need and crumbled and so forth. And that's mentioned in the book of Hezekiah, one of the prophets, okay, or kings. Um, book of Kings, I should say. So, Herod the Great, in the first century B.C., built the second temple. And that's referred to always as the second temple, Solomon's temple being the first, Herod's temple being the second. Hmm? No, no. He funded the restoration of what could be of Solomon's temple. Yeah. Yes. Cyrus and, and his successors, uh, uh, Artaxerxes and a few others, uh, helped the people come back and restore as much as possible these, uh, Solomon's temple. Yes. Yes. It was, uh, the first temple was cleared away as much as possible. Of course, when you talk about the Wailing Wall, if you, know, you obviously heard about the Wailing Wall, that was the foundation of Solomon's temple, which was left there intact. Okay? And it's still there. Okay. But that, that's Solomon's temple. Herod's temple is built right above that, and it's all within the same courtyard. Yeah. I've been there. I've never done that. Okay. All right. Yes, Cora? Not necessarily. Now, this is an interesting question that Cora asks. If she were to advise somebody who wanted to know about Christ, would they have to go to the Old Testament to learn about Christ? Is that sort of 
Something like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you're you're right. But for somebody starting to read the Bible seriously to understand about Christ, I would recommend that they start with the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew is probably the most complete that gives you the life of Christ, all right? And it also refers to a great deal of the Old Testament, just like we were talking about, like Hebrews does, all right? So that when you are studying Matthew and it refers to something of the Old Testament, you should go back to that portion of the Old Testament and read about it because Matthew uses the phrase, and this was done, this, whatever he's talking about, was done to fulfill what somebody said or what somebody did in the Old Testament. Okay, so if you go back, then you get both sides. And gradually, if you go through all four Gospels and do that, you'll get a great deal of the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, John is so completely different from the others. The others are more uh, biographical, all right? They take Jesus from his birth to his death. John doesn't do that. John uh, comes from a totally different point of view uh, the f- first three, the, what we call the synoptic Gospels, uh, look at Jesus as a man who also happened to be God. John's Gospel starts at the other end. And this is God who became man. Why? And goes on from there. So John, John's Gospel does not follow in a chronological order. It takes things from different parts because it fits the theological point that he's trying to make. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you and we just praise you for so many graces and blessings that you have given to us through Holy Scripture and the freedom now to study it as we wish. So we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forward. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to really understand how each of these books apply to us today. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.